It's good to see everybody today. Uh, There's a a blessing to be here. Uh, It's a a little bit warm today, but I I hope that we can uh, be be refreshed by our time spent in, in studying God's Word together. Our emotions are gifts from God. They're part of what make us human, creatures created in God's image. And as God himself feels things like affection and joy and grief and longing and jealousy and anger, we ourselves have the capacity to feel those same things. But emotions in a broken and a fallen world are also a very dangerous and sometimes deceitful thing. They they can tempt us. They can enslave us. They can convince us that we're doing right things where, in fact, we may be doing things that are in direct opposition to the heart and character of God. One, one such emotion is that of anger, and that's what I want us to focus on today. I want to focus on this passage that Jason read for us, where it says that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Uh, Anger in its more innocent forms or more often justified forms might be known as moral outrage or righteous indignation. Uh, And if you aren't familiar with what that looks like, uh, maybe just ask one of your more politically minded friends. I'm sure they could probably help you out Uh, because our society, our, our politics, our media really thrives on a sense of moral outrage. Uh, If if you listen to any news stories, often they're they're intended to kind of get your blood boiling about one thing or another, against one side or the other. Uh, Because if we can begin to characterize the other side or the people that we disagree with, with examples of the most outrageous and morally reprehensible nature, uh, well then our judgment kind of gets clouded by emotion and we're more easily manipulated. But the Bible warns us against the the misuse or the danger of a sense of moral outrage or righteous indignation. I think that's really what James 1 verse 20 is indicating here. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God, even in cases where we might think that our anger is properly fueled and properly directed. It can often be deceiving. And it won't truly further the righteousness of God. It warns us not to be deceived in this. But what exactly does that mean? What does it mean that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God? Does it mean that anger is never justified? Does it mean that there is no place for moral outrage or righteous indignation in the life of the Christian? What exactly does the Bible have to say about proper and improper anger? And that's really what I want us to focus on today. Uh, Starting from this verse here in James 1 verse 20, but seeing how the Bible treats the emotion of anger throughout the scriptures in ways that are legitimate and ways that will just guide us farther away from the righteous life that God intends for us to live. First of all, we, we might say that the anger of man spoken of here in one sense may be considered a man-focused anger. Uh, Very very similar to how in the scriptures we see the contrast between a worldly sorrow and a godly sorrow. 
uh, I think throughout the scriptures we can see a concept of a, a man-focused or a worldly and fleshly anger and a, a God-focused anger, an anger that is motivated by personal hurt and fleshly thinking, and an anger that is aimed at feeling the way that God feels about things and ultimately reflecting his character and his heart. And whether or not that is what the language of this passage here is specifically referring to, I think we do see this concept throughout the scriptures of a, a man-focused anger. And I, I want us to see that concept, and it might help at least inform our thinking as we come back here to James 1 and verse 20. In fact, the very first time that we are introduced to anger within the scriptures, it is this man-focused or fleshly worldly, kind of self-absorbed anger. In Genesis chapter 4, you may remember the story of Cain and Abel. And there in Genesis 4, we see that Abel brings his offering of the first things of the flock, and Cain brings an offering of the fruit of the ground. And it says that God had regard for Abel and his offering, but had no regard for Cain and his offering. And so there in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 5, we see, so Cain was very angry, and his face or his countenance fell. And in verse 5, it says, in the Lord, uh, verse 6, it says, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. I, I think God's question to Cain here really gets to the heart of the problem. And perhaps it's the question that we need to ask ourselves anytime that we're struggling with anger. He says, why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? Is this a legitimate Anger? Is this a good reason to be angry? And maybe we need to ask ourselves, would, would God think that this is a good reason for me to be angry? Or am I simply anger, angry because of how the situation affects me? And how it makes me feel, how it's wounded my pride, or how it, it violates my own selfish interests? Because in the case with Cain, nobody had done anything wrong except for Cain himself, right? Nobody had sinned against Cain. There was no justified anger here. And God really gets to the heart of the problem saying, Cain, th this is your own doing. It's your actions, your failings that are bringing about this anger. And you need to take hold of that. You need to take care of that. And yet Cain here believes the lie that the source of his problems is not himself, but is his brother. And if he lashes out in anger and executes his anger against his brother Abel, well, then that's going to fix the problem. Well, obviously, it doesn't begin to fix the problem. It makes it a hundred times worse, as he is then punished by the Lord and cursed from the face of the ground and ends up even leaving God's presence. But Cain here but believes the lie that anger told him. That here, this anger, uh, if executed, would bring satisfaction to him. But this isn't the only time that God questions somebody about the motives of their anger. Uh, if you want to turn to the book of Jonah. Jonah in the section of the, the minor prophets. You have Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah. 
And here you may remember the story of Jonah as God commands this prophet, Jonah, to go out and preach to the Assyrians, to the city of Nineveh, the capital city. And Jonah doesn't want to have anything to do with that. Uh, He doesn't think very highly of the people of Assyria. Uh, And so he runs the opposite direction in which God ends up uh, bringing a storm. And eventually Jonah finds himself in the belly of the the fish, which God miraculously preserves him through and brings him out to the shore that he can go and preach to Nineveh. And as he preaches to Nineveh in chapter 3, he says, yet 40 days and God's going to bring judgment. And yet... As much as Jonah had kind of a low view of these people, they hear his message and they respond to his message and they repent. And so in verse 10 of chapter three, it says, when God saw what they did, how they uh, turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Chapter four, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry and he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, Oh Lord, please take my life from me for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? It sounds a lot like what he had asked of Cain, right? And here Jonah is is angry because he wanted to see the destruction of these people that he had this, this prejudicial grudge against. But look down in verse 9. We see what happens here is Jonah sets himself on the outside of the city. And he kind of sets a booth up there to look at the city and to see, well, maybe God will still destroy them. And if God destroys them, I want to be here to to witness it. And as he's there, God allows a plant to grow up and and bring him shade from the sun. And so Jonah's very thankful for that. But the next morning, as the sun begins to beat down and a scorching east wind comes, God causes that plant to, to wither, to die. And Jonah again becomes very angry. In verse 9, it says, But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? What's God teaching Jonah here? He twice repeats that question, do you do well to be angry? And he contrasts Jonah's anger about the destruction of this plant and his anger that the city of Nineveh is not destroyed. What was the source of his anger? What was the motivation behind it? Well, it was not a righteous anger. In fact, I think Jonah from the very beginning of chapter 4 recognizes that his anger is not consistent with the character of God. God is slow to anger, he says. God is is abounding in in grace and mercy and does not want to destroy Nineveh. And so far from being a reflection of God's anger, God's righteous anger, here this is a self-focused anger, a self-absorbed anger. And Jonah is angry about the destruction of this plant because it was doing good to him, right? Because of how it affected his situation. And yet... 
He was angry that this people of, of thousands were not going to be destroyed because of his prejudicial grudge against the people of Assyria. But I think we need to ask ourselves, is that us? Is that the kind of anger that we experience? Are we only outraged at sins that affect us or maybe violate our sensibilities? Do, do we only feel indignation towards the evil on, of, of people on the other side of the political aisle? Do, do we only feel anger towards the sins of people on the, on the other side of the train tracks? Or is our anger genuinely a desire to, to reflect the heart and character of God? Is our anger also mixed not only with righteous anger, but righteous mercy and righteous love and righteous grace and righteous compassion? Because if God himself is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, maybe we not only need to at times reflect his anger at sin, but all the more make sure that we're reflecting his compassion and his mercy as well. We need to make sure that the anger that we might feel, the moral outrage that we might feel against the sins of others, we also feel towards the sins of our own lives. The sins that, that we more readily justify. Uh, we need to make sure that we have the perspective of God in the way that we feel about these things. Because ultimately, the only things that should stir up anger in our heart are the things that stir up anger in God's heart. Whether those things show up in my enemy or whether those things show up in my own life. And if God is slow to anger, if God is long-suffering, if he is compassionate and eager to forgive, how much more should you and I be? But in contrast to Jonah, in contrast to Cain, our perfect example of God-focused anger is Jesus himself. If you want to turn to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, starting in verse 13, here we see Jesus expressing some of the uh, most in intense teaching methods that we see throughout his ministry. Here in verse 13, it says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. What, what motivated such a passionate response by Jesus? What, what caused him to act in such zeal uh, and presumably anger against what was going on here? Do we see Jesus acting this way when he was betrayed by Judas? No, in fact, we, we see he tells Peter to put away a sword. Do we see Jesus acting this way when he was at his trial and he was being falsely accused? Well, no, we see he was led like a lamb to the slaughter and did not open his mouth. Do we see Jesus acting this way when the Roman soldiers were mocking him and beating him? 
No, Jesus willingly took that suffering. And he hung upon the cross, praying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Why, why, why don't we see Jesus kind of turning over some tables in those instances? I think we see certainly his heart is very grieved at what is going on there. But here we see Jesus with a, a measured passion and zeal and anger making a point and teaching a lesson, not because of simply how this was making him feel, not because of his own personal hurt in this. Uh, he, he's really focused on the Father and on how this is affecting their relationship with God, that here they had taken the house of God and turned it into a place of business and how this was affecting God's people and their worship to him. Brethren, if there is ever an appropriate time for us to express anger as God's people, it's not simply when, when we have felt some personal hurt and when somebody is not respecting us and somebody is violating my rights. That's not the time where Christians should be showing any sign of, of moral outrage. It's when people are doing damage to their relationship with God. <laughs> when people are wounding the heart of God, that we should, to some extent, share in God's anger about those things. But recognizing that our anger needs to be God-focused and not self-focused is really not a complete picture of the issue. Because even if we are angry at the right times and for the right reasons, it doesn't necessarily mean that our anger is going to lead us in the right direction or to do the right things, to handle things the right way. And I think in James 1 and verse 20, that's part of what we're being warned against. Um, that even when we think our anger is justified, it doesn't mean it's going to aid us in walking down the path of God's righteousness. Because anger is an appropriate emotion at times. But that doesn't mean that it is an effective guide for our actions. James 1 and verse 19 says, Let each of you be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Now, it's not that we are never to be angry. It tells us to be slow to anger. Just like being slow to speak doesn't mean we're never supposed to speak. But we're to have great caution when it comes to our tongues, and we're to have great caution when it comes to the emotion of anger even in times where we might think it's more justified, as he goes on to talk about in verse 20, the anger of man not producing the righteousness of God. So we need to have a great caution because anger is often a tool in Satan's hand, much more often than it's a tool within God's hand in our lives. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 26. Here as it talks about putting on the new man, putting off the old man, in verse 26 it says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. You notice the first part of that verse, it says, be angry and do not sin. The, the way it's worded there almost sounds like a positive command that yes, there are times that anger is an appropriate reaction even. But he warns us. That even if it is an appropriate action, even if we're justified in feeling those feelings of anger, 
that that is a reflection of how God feels about this situation. That doesn't mean that we can just let that anger loose, that we can let that anger take the reins, that we can let it direct us, because it's often not going to direct us where God wants us to go. It's going to become a tool in Satan's hand. He warns us, do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Instead of stoking the fires of that anger, God tells us, you, you make sure that that fire is out by the time you go to bed. Make sure you fully extinguished it because you might just wake up and, and a forest fire has started. Anger is not something to be taken lightly, even when it is justified, even when it's appropriate. It's something that is dangerous, is often deceitful, and making us think that we're doing the right things, where in fact we're not furthering uh, the righteous life that God desires for us. And and we see that these concepts really are a reflection of God's character. Jonah uh, recognized in Jonah chapter 4 and verse 2 that God himself is slow to anger. We as well need to be slow to anger. Uh, And God himself is also quick to put his anger to rest. If you look in Psalm chapter 30 and verse 5, David writes, For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. So as God urges us to be slow to anger and to be quick to put that anger to rest, God himself reflects that in his character as well. So while anger may be an appropriate feeling insofar as it reflects the heart of God towards sin, We have continual warnings about its danger, very similar to the dangers of the tongue. I want you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, here in the Sermon on the Mount, notice what Jesus says about the danger of anger. Starting in verse 21, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to hellfire. Here, Jesus tells us we we need not only to be worried about where that anger might eventually lead, like Cain killing his brother Abel. We, we need to take it a whole lot of steps earlier. We need to get back to the heart of the issue because it's not just the outward actions that will condemn us before God. It's even the attitude of our heart in having anger. Now, the, the King James and New King James versions say here in verse 22, who, uh, everyone who is angry without a cause with his brother will be liable to the judgment. Um, that is present in some manuscripts. It seems that it, it may be kind of a, an uh, added interpretation to help us understand the, the intent of the text. Most manuscripts don't include it. But, but what does that mean? If he says, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, does that mean I can never feel anger? I can never be angry? Well, no, Ephesians 4 said be angry. We're told be slow to anger. So what exactly is meant here? I think it's very similar to the next thing that Jesus addresses, which is the problem of lust within the heart. And he warns us in verse 27 and 28 that anyone who looks at a woman uh, uh, with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Well, I I think we, we recognize there is a proper context for sexual desire. In fact, we're studying Song of Solomon, and I think we see that many times. Obviously, here he's talking about the the context in which 
This and its ultimate expression would lead towards adultery. This uh, lustful desire for an improper, uh, in an improper direction, I think in the same way, anger here is that anger that in its ultimate expression would lead towards murder. And even before then would lead towards saying hurtful things towards others. This is, uh, um, and maybe that's why we have that, that uh, statement without a cause, without a just cause. It, it's not that we can never feel anger, but Jesus warns us very, very clearly here that that anger, even within itself, can be wrong. That it is dangerous that if we allow it to, to dwell and, and to fester within our hearts, it can condemn us before the Lord, even just by, by lodging there. And very similar to the, the temptation to lust, we, we can't always control what knocks on the door of our hearts, right? We may be tempted by feelings of lust. We may be tempted by feelings of anger. But we can control what we open the door to, what we allow to come in, what we allow to dwell there. And God warns us, don't let your heart be a hospitable place for anger. Don't let anger be something that, that often dwells there. Be very careful. Uh, guard your heart against the influence of anger. And we see the same warning throughout the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. In Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 22, we're told, A man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. If anger is something that often dwells within our heart, we can be sure that it will condemn us in the eyes of God, that it will lead us in directions that uh, are contrary to the righteous life that he desires of us. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 9, we read, Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. And so anger, no matter how appropriate, is not something that we can let take control. Because anger is dangerous. Anger is deceitful. And while it may at times be present in the righteous life, it cannot be relied upon to help promote the righteous life. Anger cannot take the reins. And if it does, it is not going to lead us closer to God. And so while there may be appropriate times to feel anger, uh, there is, is never an appropriate time to let that be the guide of our actions, of our decisions. Because at the end of the day, only God can truly have righteous indignation. What do we mean by that? Well, there are numerous examples in the scripture of people acting out of a sense of righteous indignation, people acting out of a sense of moral outrage that are ultimately condemned for their actions. Let's go back to, to the book of Genesis for a moment. Um, in Genesis chapter 34, we read a story about Simeon and Levi, two sons of Jacob. And in Genesis 34, their sister, Dinah, is raped by a man named Shechem. And they learn of this, and they're understandably furious about what has happened. And so Shechem wants to marry their sister, and he and his people come and want to intermarry with Jacob and his sons, the Israelites. And they convince them to 
become circumcised, to become like them if they're going to intermarry with them. But Simeon and Levi, as these men are recovering from that surgery, they go out and in their anger, in their legitimate anger, they kill all of the people of Shechem and his city. And at that moment, we don't read any statement from God about what God thought about that one way or another. But by the time we get to Genesis chapter 49, we see the inspired words of Jacob as he is blessing his sons. And in Genesis 49, if you want to turn your Bibles there, look what he says about Simeon and Levi. Starting in verse 5, Genesis 49 and verse 5 through 7, we read, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger. For it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Why is it that, that Levi and Simeon don't receive the, the, the blessing, don't receive the, the birthright here? Judah ends up being the one who receives the, the blessing. But Levi and Simeon would be the next in line to receive that. Well, it's because of this thing that they did in Genesis 34 says, cursed be their anger. Now, wait a second. Isn't it right to be anger, angry about what happened there? If we were ever going to be angry about something, certainly we would be angry about this happening to one of our own siblings, would we not? It's not that the feeling of anger was an improper thing here. In fact, God himself would be angry about such actions being taken upon one of his children. And yet that anger did not lead them towards a righteous course of action, did it? Even when anger is at the proper time for the proper reasons, that doesn't mean we can let it loose. That doesn't mean that we can let it take control of our actions. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And it can lead us towards actions that are in direct violation of what God would desire of us. Let's look at a second example. Turn, turn your Bibles to Numbers chapter 20. Numbers chapter 20, and here we read about Moses. And if, if you've read through the book of Numbers up to this point, your, your frustration is probably building with the people of Israel. God's frustration, in fact, is building with the people of Israel. As they, time and time again, rebel against him. We see back in chapter 11, they complain about not having meat and only having this God-provided manna to eat. And so God provides them with quail and even at that time punishes the many, many of them. Uh, in chapter 12, we see Miriam and Aaron themselves are opposing Moses and his leadership and punished for it. In chapter 13 and 14, we see they send the, the uh, 12 spies into the land and they bring back, most of them bring back a bad report and they rebel against God and not going into the land as he commanded and they're sentenced to wander for 40 years in the wilderness when they were right at the edge of entering into the promised land. In chapter 16, you see Korah's rebellion when Korah, Dathan, and Abiram rebel against Moses and Aaron and they end up being swallowed alive by the earth. 
And so by the time that we get to chapter 20, if you were Moses, you can understand why you would be angry, why you would be frustrated about the people and their rebellion against God and their actions. Because here in Numbers chapter 20, we see the people complain again. They complain that they don't have water. And they say, if if only we were like the, the other people that had died, we'd be better off than being here in the wilderness without water. And so if you read with me in verse 7 beginning, it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. Verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. What was the problem here? What what did Moses do wrong and why? I, I think on the surface level, we see that God told him to speak to the rock and instead he struck the rock. But I think there's more going on here than just that. And perhaps Moses's words really reveal to us the, the primary problem. He says there in verse 10, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And you can understand in his frustration here how he, he might want to, to hit something <laughs> instead of just talking to the rock. But God says to him, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you should not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. What, what's the problem? Here, Moses, in essence, is saying, you know what, God and I, we're really fed up with you. We, we've had it about up to here. Do we have to do this again for you? And he didn't treat God as holy in the eyes of the people. Moses, in his frustration and in his anger, kind of lifted himself up in a position of executing or or expressing moral outrage and righteous indignation. And in doing so, ultimately put himself in the position of God and an equal plane with God and how he responded to the people. But God is holy, and I'm not, not except by his grace. And so the anger that I feel towards the sin of others, he's already felt towards me. In fact, you remember the story of Moses? You remember how in Exodus chapter 4, when God first called Moses, that Moses started making excuses and saying, you know, well, well, no, I'm not eloquent of speech. You know, well, what if they ask me this? What if they ask me that? You know, how will they know that you sent me? And by the end of that, in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 14, it says the anger of God was kindled against Moses. Now, Moses wasn't 
in this lofty position of being able to look down at the people and saying, you know, God and I are getting really tired of this. Now, God himself had been angry with Moses. And here again, God is angry with the way that Moses handles this situation. Because at the end of the day, to have truly righteous indignation, we have to be righteous. <laughs> and not a single one of us is righteous on our own accord. And so there is a separation there. God is holy. God can have that righteous indignation. He can have that moral outrage in a way that you and I never can because we are the objects of that moral outrage. Because we ourselves have brought anger to the heart of God in our rebellion against him. And so while we might be able to declare God's righteous indignation and share in some extent with those feelings, it's not our place to take them into our own hands. We have no right to act upon our personal moral outrage. We have to leave that in the hands of God. Remember the story in Matthew chapter 18, the parable of the unforgiving servant. And in that parable, Jesus talks about a master who had a servant who owed him 10,000 talents. That is an unpayable debt. A talent is a measurement of weight, not a measurement of, of money per se. So we're talking about thousands of, of tons of wealth here. You, you don't get a debt like that without having some moral blight, some unfaithfulness before the Lord. But here, this servant that owed this debt to his master, his master has compassion on him. And while the master had every reason to be outraged at this debt, he shows his love and his mercy and forgiving this unpayable debt. But what happens next? This same servant goes out and finds another servant who owed him a hundred denarii, something that, that could be paid within a matter of, of, of months or years. And he refuses to have mercy upon him. And he takes him by the throat and tells him that he needs to pay all. Is that us? You know, we, we need to recognize that we're the ones who have been forgiven. We're the ones who deserve to have God's moral outrage against us. And so who are we to, to kind of wield the tool of moral outrage against the world around us? No, we, we can point people towards God's moral outrage. And we can share in some extent with those feelings, but it is not our place to execute that. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Turn your Bibles to one last passage in Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 and in verse 18. Or actually, we'll start in, in verse 19 here. In verse 19 of Romans 12, we read, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do you remember back in Ephesians chapter 4 when it said, don't let the sun go down on your anger lest you give place to the devil? That's the same idea here, except we're to give place to God. 
Instead of stoking that fire and giving Satan a foothold in our heart and in this situation, here we're told that we need to allow God to take control. That we need not to act out in anger, but leave that judgment to the Lord. And what's our place? He says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Brethren, our place is not to act out moral outrage. We can feel it. We can feel it in appropriate areas, in appropriate ways, just as God in his heart feels it. But it is not our place to execute it. It is not our place to act upon it. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Our place is to leave, leave place to God and to his wrath and to his judgment. And we are to act in love and compassion. We are to not so much be meeting out God's anger as we are to be seeking to share his love and his grace with the world around us. So it's not wrong for us to feel moral outrage uh, towards uh, the sin of the world around us. It, it gives us a small taste of what God feels, but we need to realize that at the end of the day, we are only able to experience those feelings secondhand. Those emotions don't belong to us. They only rightly belong to God. And so we need to be slow to anger and quick to show love. What about you? What about me? How have we been handling anger? How have we been handling moral outrage? Uh, you know, the, the world tells us that anger can be a good motivator, right? Sometimes, you know, somebody just needs to get stirred up a little bit more and then they'll be able to act. Well, no, those actions are really going to be what God wants them to be. And so while Jesus can go out and turn over tables because he rightly owns moral outrage, uh, I, I don't think in our case it's appropriate for you and I to go down to you know, the, the, the church uh, down the street where they have a coffee shop uh, in, in the foyer and, and start uh, you know, knocking over coffee cups or anything like that. It's not our place. Now, God can execute his righteous anger. Jesus can be a messenger of the, of the righteous anger of God. And we can point people towards God's righteous anger. But that's not our place. Our place is to show love. If you recognize today that there's some change that you need to make, if there's any way that we can help you in that change, we ask that you'll let us know. That's why we're here. For each of us to be convicted by God's word, to be changed by God's word, to be brought closer to him, closer to who he wants us to be. If you've never committed your life to the Lord and you need to bury your old man of sin in the waters of baptism, you can confess your belief in Jesus as the Christ today. You can raise out of that water a new creation by the power of the resurrection, by the power of God's grace. If there's anything that we can do to help you in your relationship with the Lord, we ask that you'll let us know at this time. We're going to sing number 481.